All right, well, it is Advent season. Now, I don't know what you grew up with. I did not necessarily grow up in a church context that celebrated Advent like that. We celebrated Christmas, but I didn't really know what Advent was. And uh, just over the, uh, the recent years, it's been interesting to kind of learn this idea of Advent. Uh, Advent comes from a Latin word that means the arrival or the coming. And it separates, or I'm sorry, celebrates Jesus' arrival as the Messiah and his future arrival that we are waiting for. So the, the idea of Advent is actually not just a Christmas celebration, but it's using the season of Christmas time to celebrate Jesus' arrival as the Messiah and the future that we're waiting for and everything in between. So basically, Advent is celebrating our entire discipleship to Jesus and focuses it in a four-week period so that we can understand with greater measure what it means that we follow him. So we're just going to tackle all of it over the next four weeks. Does that sound like fun? Like the whole, the whole discipleship process. It should be pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but here's the thing. In talking about Advent, what's so interesting to see is, is how the Bible breaks down the story. Advent didn't begin in the manger. Like that's, that's the thing about this season. It's the, the manger is a huge deal. And honestly, it's a lot of fun to celebrate Christmas uh, we're going to read through Luke as a family in our, in our family worship. We love just celebrating Jesus' birth. It's a critical thing. But the reason that Jesus' birth is a critical thing actually starts long before that moment. And so today, I want to I start by talking about why Advent is such a big deal, and then uh, we'll go into another passage that deals with how to live in light of what we understand to be true about Advent. So that's kind of how today is going to go. And then over the next four weeks, we're going to carry the theme of Advent. Uh, I say four weeks, it's really three weeks and then Christmas Eve. And we're going to look into a few of the themes uh, that Advent traditionally circles around. Uh, the first is that Jesus is our peace. See, the reality of peace is that uh, it's, it's more than the absence of conflict. Sometimes when we think about peace, it's just like, I don't fight with somebody, therefore I'm at peace with them. But the biblical peace that God wants to give us is actually an active thing. It's called shalom in the scriptures, and it's, it's God's gift of a soul that is at rest. And that soul that is at rest, that is something that he wants us to experience and have for ourselves. And we want to understand, how do we get that peace? How do we find that peace that he gives us? The second thing uh, week is Jesus is the hope of the church. We'll talk about hope. Jesus purchased the church with his blood, and his coming is the eager expectation of the church. It's what we are built to wait for. So we're going to talk about the idea of hope, the looking forward. See, the thing is, uh, being a Christian is different than being an optimist. I am a total and complete eternal optimist, right? I think everything that I go into is going to be awesome and going to work out great. That's just my nature. I am a walking Lego movie. Everything is awesome. <laughs> That is different than biblical hope. See, biblical hope is actually built on the fact that, that God has fulfilled his promises. And so then when he makes new promises about the future, we can trust that those will be fulfilled because he has already fulfilled the promises that he already made. And so our biblical hope is not just an optimistic future like God's going to win. It's actually this knowledge that what God has promised will come true, will be faithfully fulfilled as his previous promises have been. Then we'll talk about joy. 
The idea of biblical joy, it is different because Christ is here. We're not just talking about a moody happiness that Christians, Christians are supposed to walk through life with. We're going to talk about the deep and profound joy that comes when we know that God is good and that he's for us. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about Jesus is our love, how he is the explicit expression of love by God the Father, the gift that he has given to us in the person of Jesus. And we're going to spend some time talking about that. So peace, hope, joy, and love are going to be what we talk about over the next few weeks. Does that sound good? Everybody excited about those things to talk about? Yes? All right, wonderful. Good, I'm glad. Otherwise, I would have changed everything if you had said no. So we're going to start with where Advent starts. Advent actually starts in the garden. See, the fact that Jesus had to come and, and bring redemption that has an origin story, that has a place that it began, and it began all the way back in the garden. God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and has a perfect, flawless relationship with them. Total communion. Walking in the garden together, seeing each other face to face, speaking to each other face to face. That was the nature of the relationship that God had with mankind. And then Satan comes into the story and he tempts Adam and Eve to disobey. He says, did God really say that? And this is what's so interesting is, is Satan comes into the picture, a perfect picture, and his desire in that is to trash God's creation. Like, is that really what God wants? Because you could do this other thing. And it's so wild to think about, but, but the temptation that we have to sin, the opportunities that we have to sin, are opportunities to continue to trash God's creation, to destroy what God has built, what he has made to be good. And Satan continues to whisper those things into our ear and invite us to a different kind of way. So Satan does that. He whispers into Adam and Eve's ear, says, did God really say that? Gives them the opportunity. And God actually built us with the opportunity to choose. And they choose rebellion. They choose sin. They choose disobedience. And in that moment, God reacts to their disobedience and there's a separation that, that takes place between God and man, between God and the garden, between God and the earth. God removes himself and he removes people from the garden. There's this dual separation. And in the process of doing this, God actually speaks to Satan. I don't know if you realize this, but God actually talks to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and in this phrase, uh, theologians call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. God speaks something that you see it and you realize that God is preaching the gospel to Satan long before Jesus ever enters the picture. So let's take a look at this. Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, you might look at that and say, okay, how is that the gospel? I want you to think about this for just a second. When we sinned, God owed us nothing. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was zero need for him to redeem humanity. He didn't owe that to them. It wasn't like, oh, okay, well, they sinned, so now I have to go and do this thing. There was nothing on God's part to force him to go and do anything. But what he does is he speaks to the serpent and says, what? He says, he will come and crush your head. Now in saying that, he's actually prophesying and saying that the offspring of the woman will come 
and he will crush your head, though you will bruise his heel. God is promising a time is coming when Satan, sin, death will be destroyed. God didn't have to say that. He owed us nothing. What is it called when somebody gives you something even though they owe you nothing? It's called grace. This is the very first message of grace in the scriptures where God speaks into existence a redemption plan that he did not owe the world. Satan, you just destroyed something and I am going to destroy you. That's the promise. That Satan, sin, and death will be crushed. Now here's the thing. Over the course of the Old Testament, this idea of redemption starts to get fleshed out by various prophets and stories. We start to hear about this idea of a Messiah. Now the word Messiah just means anointed one. There were many Messiahs in the Old Testament. David was a Messiah because he was anointed. He was anointed as one of God's chosen ones for a role. And you could go through every anointing story and use the word Messiah because that's all it means. But as the Old Testament was being developed, they were realizing that some of these stories and some of these prophecies weren't just about today, but that they were pointing actually to a future of the anointed one. Daniel 7 calls him the ancient of days, the son of man. There's a future one who is coming who will bring a complete redemption to the storyline, who will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, and that is the picture of the Messiah, the anointed one, that starts to develop as the Old Testament goes on. And some of the things that were spoken about this Messiah, that he would be uh, born in the tribe of Judah, we see that all the way back in Genesis 49.10. That he'd be born in the line of David, Isaiah 9. In the town of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That he would be a man of sorrows, crushed, despised, and rejected, justifying many through what he suffered, Isaiah 53. The promised deliverer would be a light overcoming darkness, Isaiah 9.2. He would be a preacher of good news to the poor, Isaiah 61. And he would be one walking in the power of the Spirit, Isaiah 42.1. There are these hints and shadows of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament that this problem of our brokenness is going to be resolved by one who will come, a Messiah. So you have Israel that's waiting, that's looking forward. They're living in the present. They get their king, they get their prophets, they have the scriptures, they have the, the, the Torah, they have the Ark of the Covenant. They have their relationship with God as they go through their story, but they're still waiting for a future redemption. Why are they waiting for a future redemption even though they're God's people already? Well, they're a living example of why Jesus is necessary. They had the presence of God walking with them the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They had the Ark of the Covenant that carried the presence of God. They were called the people of God. They had the law of God, yet they continued to go to disobedience time and time again, rebellion time and time again. They revealed the, the exact reason that we need a Messiah and not just a message. We need a Messiah because the law of God is not enough. God can tell us all the things to do, but we don't have salvation because we can't complete all the things that God has told us to do. We're, we're broken. We miss and miss and miss. Anybody here missed? Just, uh, just throwing it out there. Anybody here ever, ever missed? Yeah. We miss. 
And so God's promise is for this one that will come to redeem, to restore. So all of the Old Testament is building towards Jesus. I don't know if you realize this, but the entirety of the Old Testament is about Jesus. You can go back, and you're about to do a year-long reading plan starting in January and finishing in March with Leviticus. Uh, and you're going to get through the Old Testament, hopefully. And as you get through the Old Testament, you'll see these stories about Yahweh and these stories about Israel. And it can be hard at times, but you, you realize when Jesus speaks at the end of Luke to his disciples and points using the entire Old Testament, that it all points to him. You realize that the whole story of God is pointing towards that one moment that Genesis 3.15 prophesied, that one will come and he, the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of Satan, sin, and death. He will be victorious. He will win the battle for humanity. So it all focuses in on this moment. And then Jesus is born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit conceives a human being with a woman. And she bears a child that does not have a human father. It is a virgin birth. And that child is born, and he is a legitimate human child. Full-blown, flesh and blood, baby, toddler. We were listening to uh, Away in a Manger while we were setting up our tree last night. No crying he makes. That is absolutely false. I don't have biblical evidence for that being false. But he was a human baby. Crying he makes. Like, Jesus was a toddler. Now, here's the one that baffles me. How did Jesus go through toddlerhood without sinning? I've never seen it. But it's impossible to even imagine what that would have been like. But Jesus lives this perfect, sinless life as a full-blown human being but simultaneously as God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, pre-existing, all eternal, enters into the human storyline through a virgin birth, changes the entire scope of humanity in that moment. So you have the entire Old Testament pointing towards that moment. And then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that talk about, whoa, that just happened. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell is the, whoa, that just happened. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then you have the book of Acts, which is the and then. All right, so then it's just God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then, this is what they all did. And then the rest of the New Testament does two things. In light of Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect sinless life, dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, what does that do to us now? And the second thing it does is it looks forward to the resurrection and says in light of the future of Jesus coming again, how should we live today? That's what the New Testament is. And so you have this focal moment where the whole Old Testament points to it and then the entire New Testament and the rest of human history launches out of the birth of Jesus. And so we take this time and we look. We look at the season of Advent. The arrival of Jesus, this first one, we remember. The second coming of Christ, we anticipate. And then in this time in between, what's called the present age by many of the New Testament writers, how do we live today in light of Jesus' arrival and his future coming? What does it look like for us to live today? 
Paul answers that question in Titus chapter 2, and that's where we're going to spend our time today, is in Titus chapter 2, picking apart how Paul answers this question of how do we live in light of Jesus' advent and his future advent. All right, so open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 14. I'm going to start by reading through the whole text, and then we'll go back and we'll pick it apart. It says this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Quick note, and we'll talk about this a ton, but you look in verse 11, grace of God has appeared, past tense. In verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage frames the Messiah and his coming and the second coming of Christ and then talks about what it looks like for us to live today. So this is, again, the entire story of us as disciples summed up in one passage. Many people actually believe that this was an early church creed that got passed around from church to church. It's part of what built their doctrine. It's how they they spoke the gospel of grace. They understood it through this lens. It's helpful for us because this is absolutely foundational for us to build our lives on. So let's take some time and look at this. I love this passage. So Paul, writing to Titus, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, in that sentence, Paul is saying that the grace of God is embodied in the person of Jesus. That everything we know about God's grace has been seen and experienced and felt and known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know, we studied Exodus 34, 6 and 7 uh, last November. We know that God is gracious and kind. He's merciful. He gives favor that we don't deserve. That's the idea of God's grace. And so here, Paul writes and he says that the grace has appeared. We've seen it. We've experienced the grace firsthand in the person of Jesus. If you've ever wanted to know what God's grace would look like as it lives a human life, you look at the life of Jesus, it is God's grace in action. If you've ever wanted to know what the grace of God would sound like in words that are spoken, you look at the Gospels and see Jesus speak. That is the grace of God that has appeared. It's what we have. We have God's grace in the person of Jesus. He is the grace of God and he has appeared. We have seen him. Now, the first thing that Paul says is the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. God's grace is a saving grace. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but how many of you have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ? I hope your heart hands are just raising right now and just saying yes, and you can even just picture little heart hands being raised right now. It's creepy, but it's cool. You just think about that like, yes, I've been saved by the grace of God through Jesus. It is a saving grace. I was broken and wicked and I deserved hell and punishment. I did not live up to the righteous requirements of the law. I fell way short, way short. And God's grace appeared, bringing salvation to my life. But it's not just for me. 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for some very select chosen people. That's not what it says. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Can you say the word all for me real quick? With a little more conviction, all. Thank you, all right. Look, we love, I love our theology, and we can talk about election and predestination all day. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful concept. But the moment we start to say that God's salvation is not for all people, we actually start to deny the scriptures. So somehow we need to understand election through the lens of the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Now we know that not all will be saved because we've been given the freedom to reject the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. There is not one person that God does not want with him for all eternity, permanently at his table, feasting with him. He wants every single person, that not one person would perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God desires that Everyone would come to faith, would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All. His desire is for all. And Jesus' sacrifice was for all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a huge statement. Now many will choose to reject the gospel of grace. But there is not one person that God has pre-rejected. His grace is for all. All. God's grace is a saving grace. He keeps going. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Training us. So here's the thing. There's kind of two theologies that sort of happen around salvation. Uh, this one, there's one that was kind of big in the 80s and 90s. If you grew up with me in the 80s and 90s, there's this idea of fire insurance where you, you kind of get saved and uh, then the next year at camp you get saved again and then the next year at camp you get saved again and then the next year at camp you get saved again and you just kind of go through the cycle of being the one that's on your knees, that's raising your hands, that's repentant for a moment and then you live life the way that you want all year long and then you re-up just to make sure and then you live your life the way you want, and then you re-up just to make sure. I'll go ahead and say, if that's the way that you've been living, it's bad theology. It's not the design of the gospel at all. Because what that says is that the design of the gospel was just to secure your eternity, to make sure that from the point that you die until you're set, but that these years don't matter. But that's, that's actually not the message of the gospel at all. At all, at all, at all, at all, at all. Jesus didn't come just to secure your eternity. He came to secure your heart. Now, somebody said this, and I can't remember who said it. It was really, really good. I'll give credit to the ambiguous person that said this. Oh, it was C.S. Lewis. That's how you know it was good when C.S. Lewis says it. Uh, so it's in The Great Divorce. That's where it was. All right. So he talks about it and says this. He says, look, heaven, eternity, us experiencing the presence of God for all eternity and being swamped in the joy of the presence of God. If that's not your treasure now, 
then that won't be your treasure for eternity. If that's not what you love and enjoy at present, then heaven will be your hell. And that's the whole point of the great divorce. Great book. Guy got on the wrong bus, basically, and just goes to heaven, but it's not his heaven. He doesn't enjoy it because his treasure is not Jesus. If your treasure is not Jesus now, heaven is no heaven because Jesus is the treasure. Jesus came to bring his kingdom to earth in your life and in this world today. And so there's this message of training you for something for today. He wants to affect and impact your life today. Now there's a a whole reason that we'll get to in just a little bit, but first let's talk about what he's training in us. This training grace has appeared. And he's training us first to say no and second to say yes. The first thing, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. First of all, training is critical. Like we are by design as people, uh, we lack the ability to just do what God says. All right, I have a toddler. She's three years old. We are at the absolute height of her doing nothing that we say and everything that she wants to do. All right, so that's just where, that's the peak that we're in right now in parenting is Rosie does not do what we want her to do and she does everything she wants to do. So that's where we're at. Spiritually speaking, and when I say spiritually speaking, I'm talking about sort of our morality, our pursuit of Jesus, our spiritual disciplines, our our participation in the life of God. So the big picture of spirituality, many of us are toddlers, not doing the things that God is inviting us into and choosing instead to do whatever we want. Yet we're invited into this story where God's training us for some purpose. He's teaching us how to live this life in a way that has some kind of an impact or significance or substance or purpose or reason. And he's training us to do that. And he starts by training us to say no. Saying no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. Now it can be really hard to say no. Right? You set your goal on something. Everybody's setting goals. You set your goal on something. And then a thousand challenges come at that goal temptations to turn away from the goal that you've set and you, you, you veer and your, your, your opportunities are there to, to off-ramp and to go somewhere else and do something else. And you think about that. So many of us have said, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. He's my whole world. He's my whole life. He's everything I want in the whole wide world. And then squirrel. There's something that shows up and we're, we're looking somewhere else for something else to pursue because it showed up. It's not in us to be perfect. So the grace of God has appeared to train us how to say no, to teach us the ability to say no. Some of you are discouraged right now because of you've tried to say no and the things keep coming back. I've I've spoken to a lot of you about this. Trying to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but the things keep coming back at you. You should know that it's more natural for you to fail at that than it is for you to succeed at that. But the grace of God has appeared. And one of the reasons that the grace of God has appeared is so that tomorrow you'll have a greater ability to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions than you do today. And the next day, you have a greater ability to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions than you did the day before. The grace of God has appeared to develop in you the ability to identify 
the things of this world. To see them, to acknowledge that they're there. Have you ever been in a conversation, everybody's just talking, it's all fine, just chatter, 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 and then boom, you're in like the slander gossip world so fast you don't even know how you got there. And the chatter just went to that place, and you're right there with it, and it's, it's just all of a sudden, you're in it. And it's hard to get out of it once you're in it, and it's hard to even identify that you're in it once you're in it, but you're there, and you're participating, and you're right there in the mix. It's crazy how fast we can find ourselves in these situations. You can apply that to almost any sinful kind of thing. It's just like we can be going, and then we're just we're right there. Well, the gospel of grace wants to train us to identify those moments and say, how do I not? How do I say no to worldliness? How do I say no to ungodliness? So the Spirit of God is there to help us, to teach us how to say no. The community of the saints are there to help us, to teach us how to say no. Again, we'll get to the why in just a little bit, but just know that the grace of God has appeared, Jesus has appeared, and he is a training grace. He's trying to teach us how to live these lives in a certain way. And it starts with a no. Our generation doesn't like to say no. Right? Whatever makes you feel good about yourself, Right? Treat yourself. Whatever makes you feel good about yourself. Whatever makes you like yourself better. Whatever makes you feel like you belong. You do those things. The gospel has a different message. Training us to say actually no to ungodliness. Even though that might make me feel like I belong in this environment more. Even though it might make me feel like I I have a, a greater satisfaction with life. The gospel is teaching us to say no to those things because we have a greater purpose. There's something that we're being trained for. Now that, and then this grace that's appeared trains us how to live a yes. And look at what, look at what Paul says. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this grace that's appeared is training us how to be self-controlled, how to choose in a moment, actually, I don't want to do that thing, and I want to live a different way. Self-control is one of our greatest challenges as human beings. It is so difficult. The other day, we were, actually, it was yesterday, we went out shopping for a Christmas tree, Costco Oxnard. Great price, excellent selection, beautiful trees. They don't pay me. So we're there. And I have three teenage boys, and, uh, and they were wrestling and being teenagers and doing the thing that teenage boys do, and just, you know, boxing and shoving and elbowing faces and whatever. And uh, they're there, and Kristen's saying, all right, I want to take a picture. Everybody grab a tree. And so the three boys grab a tree, and they're still wrestling and punching with a tree in their hands, but it's just a fun moment. And Kristen, like, she's a great mom, and it comes out of her mouth as she's saying, like, guys, stop wrestling or you're going to knock the trees over. She's saying this. It's coming out of her mouth. And the wrestle just, and then, like 15 trees get knocked over. The Costco employees just walk over, staring at our boys. There are so many times that God speaks to us, and we even want to do what he's saying. We just lack the self-control to execute. But Jesus has appeared to train us how to have greater self-control every day so that we can choose to execute obedience to the things of God. 
God wants to develop that in you. He wants to sharpen your skill as a person of self-control so that you can be more disciplined tomorrow than you are today. Jesus has appeared to train us in self-control. He's also going to train us to be upright. What do you think of when you think of upright? For me, I think of somebody that's just kind of got their life together. Like as a man of God, they're just, they're doing it. They're they're faithful, they're generous, they're alive in their faith. They love to worship, they love to pray, they're devoted to the scriptures. It's beautiful. They just, people like them, they're respected, they're respectable, they're respectful of others. Does anybody know somebody that you would classify in your own brain as upright, that you just like think of, and you think of that person, and you're like, wow, I want to be like them when I get older, like that kind of a thing. It's good to have those people in our lives. Jesus wants to train us in uprightness. Again, I'll get to the why in just a minute. But it's his desire that you would be kind in this world. You would be respectful in this world. Faithful to your spouse, to your children in this world. Diligent in participating in spiritual disciplines in this world an excellent friend to people that trust you. Somebody that as a neighbor is a presence and is a a welcome phone call. We've had so many stories. We've been asking that question of how have you seen the power of God in the last seven days? It's a great question. If you're in a community group, it's a great question to just ask, how have you seen the power of God move in the last seven days? We had, I think we had three different stories of people in either work or gym environments that when somebody not a believer, their life hit a wall, they called that person and said, hey, you you pray, right? Would you pray for me? That's what it looks like to live an upright life is that when somebody's life starts to get confused, you're the person that they call because you've lived in a way that displays the goodness of God, the rightness of God, the faithfulness of God, the character of God. And the gospel's training us to live an upright life to be distinct and different from a world that is going to be increasingly, what's the opposite of upright? Laying down. That's a, uh, sorry, bad picture. All right, there we go. Next up. Training us to live godly. The word godliness uh, can be broken down. It means godlikeness. It means like God. Act like God. It's a big statement. But God says it. Imitate me. He calls us to be imitators of him. It's an important part of our understanding that one of the things that God wants to do is take his nature and his character and implant it in us so that we live it out so that people can experience God in the flesh. It's not that you become God, it's that you imitate God and people get to experience God through you. So here's the thing, the most godly person to ever live, Sunday school answer, Jesus. He was God in the flesh, and he gave us a perfect picture of godliness, of what God would look like living this life here and now. And then he calls us to live our lives in our places, where you work, the kids that you have, the, the roommates that you have, the classes that you're taking, through the lens of what would it look like if God were doing that work and that class and with those friends And that's the idea of God-likeness, is that you are living godly 
so that people can experience God. See, Jesus is gone. He is away. He even told us it's better if I go because of the Holy Spirit. But then he called us through the Holy Spirit to be a picture of God to people. So here's what I want to challenge you with in this one. Now, we're being trained to live godly. You're being trained to live in a way that the people that you're with get to experience God because they met you. Another way to look at this is that people don't get to experience God if followers of Jesus are not living godly lives. Now, I realize that there are like Muslims in foreign nations that are having dreams and meeting Jesus through those dreams. These are some of the wildest stories. Have you guys heard these stories? They're some of the wildest stories of incredible prophetic moments. It's such a fun thing. But those people that give their lives to Jesus after meeting him in a dream, they go and find other believers. They still need to see a picture of what God looks like and lives like. This world can't know God unless the followers of Jesus are living godly lives so they can experience what the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It has to matter in your life or it's never going to matter in theirs. So that's what it means to live godly. So the grace of God has appeared to train us to, to live a godly life. Then it says, in this present age. So let me just re-clarify this before we move on to the next section. You have the age of anticipation of Jesus' first arrival. That's the first age. And then this is big picture Bible talk. And then you have this current era. Jesus forward until his second coming is what's, what the Bible calls this present age. That's the age that we are in, this present age. We have a job to do. There's something here for us, which we'll talk about right now. And then there's the age to come which is when Christ comes again, the resurrection and eternity. That's the age to come. So Paul's writing and he's talking about how to live in this present age. But he says it comes with this lens of the future, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So in the same way that in the Old Testament they were anticipating the Messiah, we here and now in the present age are anticipating the Messiah also. It's different because Jesus came and died and now we are called children of God. We have the spirit of God. We are alive. We've been made alive together with him. If you were here a couple weeks ago when my dad taught, uh, he shared that he used to stay up late, or no, he wouldn't stay up late. He'd record UCLA basketball games and then he would watch them, but only if they won. He didn't like watching them lose. So he would only watch UCLA basketball if the team, if he knew they won, right? Uh, and that's, that's this idea of living with this hope. It's actually looking forward, knowing the final outcome and being able to live this life in victory, knowing what the future holds. And so Paul and the other New Testament writers are constantly pointing us forward, saying, look, know that Jesus is coming again. Total and complete victory. It affects how you live now. So you should be anticipating the second coming of Christ. I know as a generation, we don't like to use the word should. It's, it's kind of taboo to just tell somebody what they should do. It's, it's autonomous. We're supposed to be able to define for ourselves what I should and should not do. But I'm going to tell you biblically what you should do. And that's hope in the future of Jesus coming again. You should have that in your life. It affects you. It changes the way you live. If you anticipate the second coming of Christ, here's just a like a... You're trying to think, how do I do this? Let's just say there's any friction in your life. Just pick your, your, your difficulty, whatever it is. 
Whatever you're facing, whatever you're up against. It could be relational, it could be work-related, physical health, whatever. Just pick your uh, whatever the issue is. If you were to take that issue and just insert like a, like a slide before it, just to see, and before you deal with that issue, whatever that is, you're talking to yourself and you're saying, okay, Jesus Christ is coming again. And in that, he will fully and completely restore all things to right. He has already won the victory. I know this because God promised that he would come and he is here. And then he said he would come again, and so I can know that he will return. I can live through whatever's on the other side of this slide, knowing that when all is said and done, Christ is victorious. Does that change the way that you deal, whatever that difficulty is, the way that you go through, whatever that challenge is? If you start with the resurrection, if you start with eternity, if you start with Christ's second coming, and whatever's behind that, gets dealt with in a completely different way. And that's what the writers are trying to do. Build into them a way to live because the things are going to get difficult. Now their difficulty and our difficulty were often different. They were separated from families. They were killed. They were persecuted. They would lose jobs. They would be cast out of cities. They would be beaten to death, thrown with lions, whatever. Those things are still happening. I got to see... The, the, the effects of some of them in Nepal, dealing with the Buddhists that were trying to, to get this church completely out of their town, still facing persecution to this day. But their hope is in the resurrection. Their hope is in the second coming of Christ. And so it allows them, I told you this story last week, but if you weren't here, this brand new church, brand new believers, they had just met Jesus, and the Buddhists were extremely angry that these people had just met Jesus and were trying to kick them out of their town, and the Christians were gearing up to fight. They were prepared for a little battle. It was going to be this showdown at the OK Nepali Corral, and it was going to go down, and they called Satya and said, hey, we're about to fight the Buddhists. <laughs> and Satya said, no, don't fight the Buddhists. And they approached it from a completely different perspective. They went at it with the peace of Christ. They dealt with it. They went face to face with the Buddhists. They invited the Buddhists to come and sit in on their gathering, to listen, to worship with them, to hear the gospel. Some of, not all of, some of the Buddhists came in. They were angry. But they came in and they heard the word. And over time, many of those Buddhists have given their life to Jesus. But our, in, in our world, you meet conflict with conflict. But when Jesus said, actually, I'll take care of the conflict. You guys go be peacemakers. It lets us approach the world totally differently. So they're coming at us with conflict, and we're coming at them with peace. And it changes the way that we live our lives. Okay, so Paul finishes. He says, uh, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Yeah, this is an incredibly important reality. We're not just saved to be God's people. Now, I love the fact that we're God's people, and the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a Westminster Catechism of Faith. It's a beautiful phrase. It's good. But Paul's writing, and he said, Jesus redeemed you from lawlessness and purified you to be a people for his own possession. But there's a so that so that you'll be zealous for good works. 
Why is that a part of this story? If eternity is all that matters, why is Jesus so deeply concerned with today? Why does he want his people to be self-controlled, upright, godly, and zealous for good works? Why are those the markers that Jesus wants for his people? My grace has showed up, and it saves you, and it trains you because I want you to be self-controlled, upright, godly, and I want you zealous to do good. See, Jesus doesn't just want to fill you up for the sake of filling you up. And he doesn't just want to fill you up for the sake of filling himself up. Now, ultimately, it's so that his glory would be felt and known, but it's not a prideful kind of glory. It's a, it's a, it's a glory that embraces the world. God so loves the world. So Jesus is bringing his grace and training us because he wants more of his presence to go out into the world so that people can experience God and his grace. He wants them to know him. So he sent you. This is what we're going to be talking about at our family meeting this afternoon. This idea that if God's people are not walking and living godly lives, there's no mission. There's no advancing of the kingdom of God. God has put all his eggs in the basket of you and me to carry his name and his life and to go out into the world and spill the goodness and the grace of God into dark places and dark people and dark lives and broken places and broken people and broken lives. His longing is that people would experience his grace because he lavished it on you and it spilled out. He wants you zealous. Think about zeal for just a minute. What's zeal look like? When you think of the word zeal, right? Well, I just... Things should be coming to your mind. Whatever it is, sports fan, zeal, just high energy, high ambition, just charged up and ready to go, full-blown focus on the grace of God has appeared so that you would be zealous, full-blown focused on doing the good of God in this world. This is wild, you guys. God wants his good to spill out of you into people that don't know him yet. He wants you to be so overwhelmed with his grace appearing in your life that they get to experience how good God is. That your neighbors get to feel God's presence because you live in the house next door to them. And you're praying for them and you're blessing them, and you're loving them, even when they're frustrated, even when they're angry, you get to lavish them with grace. You get to bless instead of curse. In our city, this city gets to experience the grace of God because there are believers that love and follow Jesus, and his goodness is going to spill out, and we are going to be zealous to do the good of God. The call of God on your life is not to, to give your life to Jesus so that you can show up at church, have a nice Sunday, and go home and live the rest of your life and go to work and do your thing and be your person. God brought you into his story so that he could fill you with his presence, so that his presence could spill out into the world, so that the world could know that he is good. He wants his good out there. And you have it. You're holding on to it. You have God's good, and he wants it out there. And that's why he's training you to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. 
and to be zealous for good works because he's entrusted his good, his life, his faithfulness, his mercy, his kindness, his righteousness. He's entrusted it to you. And he's saying, I want you to go and I want them to feel it because you have it. That is the message of Advent. We remember Christ coming into this world and it changed everything. We anticipate Jesus Christ coming again and it will be the total and complete redemption of all things. And in this present era, this present age, you have the grace of God and our job is to take it to everybody, everywhere, all the time, go. That's the present age. You have a calling. And it's to live this present age in the fullness of God's story. Letting people experience his goodness. This is why, I mean, we'll talk Christmas. We'll talk manger. But the message is bigger than the manger. This is huge. This is the story that we have been brought into. Jesus, thank you for bringing us into this story. I do pray that there would be something in us that that wants more of you in this world. And if it's not there, Lord, I do pray that you'd be training it into us. Even use today, use this message, just train it into us. Teach us how to want more of you in this world than there was today. We want more of your presence in our city than our our city got to experience today. Lord, I pray that this would be both individual and corporate. That individually, each and every person in this room would take ownership of your presence in their life, what's been entrusted to them, and that they would scatter that into the lives of people in this world. And corporately, Jesus, we would never lose sight of what we are here for, what this present age is about, that we as a church would would be ambitious and zealous and faithful to take your good, your grace, your righteousness, your truth, your power, your joy, your love into this world with full faith, full steam. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for bringing us into this. In your name we pray, amen.